0: chapter six. As we wrap up this series on belonging, there are few things that can hit closer to the human heart than knowing that you truly belong. As we looked at the first message, we saw that our hope is tied into the reality that we are not our own, but we belong to God. In the second message, we looked at our inheritance that as we who belong to God, that God's promises belong to us as His children. In the third message, we saw that we are not alone in this world, but we have been called into and we belong to a family. In the last message, we saw that we don't need to search for significance or purpose or meaning in this life, but that we have been called into God's mission. Of enjoying and declaring, behold, He is making all things new. Each of these are objective truths based on God's word. They're true whether we feel like they are true at the moment or not. It's not based on feeling. If you're in Christ, you belong to Him. If you're in Christ, His promises belong to you. If you're in Christ, you belong to to a family. If you're in Christ, you belong to a mission. These things are true in Christ, and the beauty of them is even when it's gray outside like this, and you wake up saying, can I just go back to bed? And it's just kind of dumpus outside, isn't it? it? These things are still true anyway. These things are going to be true when you leave here. They were true upon your awakening. They are true because they are not based on the reality of our feeling. But today we're going to look at the fact that feelings are not necessarily bad. Your feelings can betray you. Your feelings can be inaccurate. Feelings can range widely from one day to the next, depending on what's going on in your life. Feelings can even range widely within the course of the same day. Who among us hasn't wished at one time or another that they could be like Dr. Spock and just possess the power to coldly analytically look at all things? You know, he's sort of become the definition of somebody who views logic and reason as being antithetical to feelings and emotions, but surely feelings can't be useless, right? They might be confusing But they're not useless. They're not a genetic deficiency that we're trying to breed out of the human race. We're called and created in the image of God. And our God is not like some kind of robot, God's not a dispassionate being knowing god is not like the tenets of buddhism where we're told to rid yourselves of emotion or passion or feeling because it will just inevitably lead to suffering and frankly i'm stunned that people in the west even buy into a system of thought that systematizes the removal of passions and emotions i mean even though passions and emotions can betray you even though they can be really inconvenient Living a dispassionate life where you are passionate about nothing in this world sounds a whole lot more like hell on earth than it does the eternal life that Jesus Christ offered us and called us into. It said simply, we feel stuff because we're made in the image of God. God feels stuff. So as His image bearers, we are also called to feel the things that our God feels. Obviously, When it comes to feelings, sin entered the world, and emotions can be corrupted or tainted or distorted, just like anything else. So we've distorted because of sin our ability to feel as God feels. So what do we do with feelings and emotions when they so often betray us? Well, as we close our series, what I want to do is look at the feeling center of our faith. People talk to me all the time, and I'm guessing any other pastor that's worth talking to, um, they talk about the times where they're feeling like or not feeling like they don't belong. You ever feel that? Wondering if you fit in. Sometimes people just more generically ask me why they're not feeling it. And when you ask them what it is or what it is that they are not feeling, They don't usually have an answer because it's tough to define. Feelings are just purely subjective, right? Well, not necessarily, and that's what we're going to look at in God's scriptures this morning. Perhaps you're here, and you are in the place of just not feeling it, and you've been dispassionate. You've been cold. You've been hard. Welcome. We're really glad to have you here with us. Today we're going to hit on the true test of where you belong. We're going to look at Jesus' teaching about how we belong to a treasure. That's an awkward way of saying what I'm trying to say because we don't usually think of treasure as something that we belong to. We think of it as something that belongs to us. Well, Jesus, as we'll see, sees it the exact opposite. As we wrap up our series on belonging, Jesus seems to define treasure as that which you belong to. If you want a working definition that we're going to use throughout this passage, he sees treasure as that which you belong to. And he seems to see your emotions as either exposing or revealing that which is truly your treasure. So if you haven't turned in your Bibles yet, turn to Matthew 6. It'll also be projected up behind me. God, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your divine scriptures. Holy Spirit, come fall anew, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, this passage, which has become known as the anxiety passage, starts out with Jesus plainly telling us that we cannot serve two masters. Look at verses 19 through 34. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I want you to catch what Jesus is doing here in this passage. It's really important as you look at verse 25, which we're going to be getting to, which gives the, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or drink, nor what you put on your body. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? I've probably heard this passage taught on more than any other passage throughout my Christian life. It's probably my go-to passage if I'm going to listen to a sermon, if I'm going to go on the internet and look for something to listen to for my own edification. Anxiety is one of the most natural feelings you can feel in this life. And this is the most detailed passage about anxiety on it in the whole Bible. Each time I've heard this passage taught on, the message starts with verse 25, which doesn't make, well, it kind of makes sense because it does have the words, do not be anxious about this life right in the verse. So if you're looking... In the Bible or you're looking on the internet, give me some passages for how I can not feel anxious. I don't know if any of you have ever searched for anything like that, but if you typed in how do I keep from being anxious in this life, it would make a lot of sense that you would go to a verse that starts out by saying, do not be anxious in this life. Only it doesn't start out with that, and it doesn't say, do not be anxious about this life. It says, therefore, do not be anxious about this life, which means that whatever Jesus is going to say about being anxious in this life is in Jesus's mind connected to what he was trying to say in the previous verses about not serving two masters. So if you're feeling anxious and you're looking in the Bible, I would encourage you not to start by just looking at the surface level of anxiety itself, look at the heart underneath the anxiety and the heart comes back to this idea that Jesus teaches about in verses 19 through 24, this idea of serving two masters. I'm going to get into what that means pretty detailed here in a moment, but Jesus is getting to something that you cannot get around no matter how hard you try, no matter how you try to get with the scriptures, he's getting at the fact that you will devote your life to serving what you treasure. Look again at verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Jesus tosses out this idea of trying to divide your heart proportionately between serving two masters, and he tells us, look, that's just not going to work. You can't do it. Anybody here know the second law of quantum physics? I'm sure that there's some that do. Uh, also known as the Pauli exclusion principle, if you want to impress your friends. And that's two objects cannot what? Occupy the same place at the same time. You know it. It's funny because it's actually named after an Austrian physicist, Wolfgang Pauli, who was created with discovering this law in 1925. But Jesus seems to have a pretty good handle on the concept 2,000 years before Wolfgang Pauli did. Jesus was looking at competing treasures, and he says, two competing treasures simply cannot occupy the same heart at the same time. In Jesus is teaching the place that it can't occupy at the same time is the heart. He's saying you can't have two treasures, two different things, possessed in the same heart at the same time, yet somehow when Jesus, who also happens to be God, Says this, it's taken as optional. Yet when some guy named Wolfgang Pauli says it, who I'm guessing most of you never heard of before this morning, it's called the second law of quantum physics. Jesus goes a step further to say that two competing pre- treasures cannot occupy the same place at the same time, and he actually says that you're going to end up resisting or repelling the competing treasure. Or in case you think that I'm stating it too strongly, let's use Jesus' words. He says, you will end up hating the competing treasure. He says, you're going to be devoted to one treasure to the point where it will make you despise and hate the other one. No matter what, verse 24 makes it super duper clear that you are going to devote your life to serving what or whom it is that you treasure most in your heart. And the example that he gives here is money. When he says in the end of verse 24, you just simply cannot serve God and money. The teaching is not about money, folks. Money is a neutral thing. For some people, it can certainly be their master. That's why Jesus pointed in verse 24. And if that is your master, I just want to let you know, if you're here, you picked a really, really, really poor master to be enslaved to. But to make this passage about money rips the heart right out of the center of this passage. Money is just the means through which to pursue the idolatry in this passage passage. It's not the issue. Like all things Jesus, Jesus isn't after the issue. He's trying to tackle the heart. Amen? This is about belonging. He's saying, no matter what, it doesn't matter how skillful you are at creating a dichotomy. It doesn't matter how much of a multitasker you are. No matter what, You simply cannot belong to two different treasures at the same time, is what Jesus is trying to get across in verses 19 through 24. You can't see God as the infinite treasure and live a life of treasuring him, but then have to devote your life to some trivial pursuit elsewhere. If you try you're going to find out that your heart is going to quickly begin to crowd out seeing and seeking God as its sole treasure in this life. So back to the, well, I'm just not feeling it anymore that I started with. If your heart has been cold and dispassionate and detached for a prolonged period of time, start out by just honestly asking your heart. Do it right now. Speak to your heart and say, what is it that you truly treasure? Personalize it. What is it that I truly treasure? Sometimes when people come to me and ask me this question, Pastor, why am I just not feeling it? I will encourage them to purposefully say no to something that they feel like they were entitled to say yes to, in order to devote the treasure that they would have spent on themselves on something selfless, something that gives no immediate return on their investment, when people can't seem to release their treasure, it shows an awful lot about what they truly treasure, doesn't it? You can say whatever you want. You could come here and raise your hands higher than everybody else in worship. You could be jumping up and down, screaming, Hallelujah, at the top of your lungs. But if your treasure is just words, what Jesus is going to say is your heart is ultimately going to reveal itself, either good or bad. So therefore, and this is probably the point that runs the most contrary to, quote, normal ways of thinking. You belong to your treasure much more than your treasure belongs to you. We don't really look at like that, do we? We think of treasure, by definition, as something that we own. Watch an old pirate movie or something. Treasure, by definition, is something sparkly that we can wrap our arms around and declare it with the flag that says, mine, on top of it. That's what treasure is. But according to Jesus, you belong to your treasure, much more than your treasure belongs to you. So when it comes to treasure, your treasure actually wraps its arms around you and declares mine. You don't own your treasure. Your treasure owns you. Can you look around and see the seeds of how this can be pervasive within a society? The fact that your treasure owns you could either be the most beautiful and liberating statement in all of humanity, or it could be the most repugnant statement in all of humanity. Again, it's really just based on your heart. If Jesus Christ is truly your treasure, then your heart is going to hear about belonging to your treasure, and you are going to echo back with a resounding amen. Amen? you got to say amen to that. Like, that was a trick question. Amen? Amen? Thank you. But back to the ideas that I started with about belonging or feeling. If you belong to any other treasure other than Christ, you will be anxious and restless in this life. That's what the context is for verses 25 through 34. Look with me. It says in verse 25, therefore... Right after telling you, you can't serve two masters. You're going to be devoted to one. You're going to end up despising the other. So therefore, now I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor your body, what you'll put on. Is your life not much more than food or clothing? And that, brothers and sisters, is why Jesus starts off the greatest teaching on anxiety in the entire Bible with the word, therefore. As you look back at a raw feeling like anxiety or worry, it could be so easy to just try to alleviate the symptoms that you're feeling in your heart. But Jesus skips right over all that noise and he just goes right to the heart itself. To Jesus, why give you seven principles on how to manage your anxiety and worry when he have to go after heart that creates the anxiety and worry to begin with. People always want the bad feelings to go away, don't they? Nobody likes bad feelings. That's not, that's, I don't mean that pejoratively. That's not an insult. I mean, who here likes bad feelings? But Jesus deals with us on a heart level. Jesus loves us too much to engage us on that level. Jesus doesn't just go after the feelings. Jesus actually uses the feelings to expose or reveal something to show you that you have to take a look at your heart. The feelings are just symptoms that point to a systemic issue going on. If you feel like you have a scratchy throat when you have strep throat, right? That's usually the first indicator that strep is going through the household. You You start to feel it. You know what? You don't heal strep throat by taking a lozenge, do you? It can deal with the symptoms, but you deal with the strep by attacking the bacteria that caused the strep to begin with. So God in his infinite wisdom gave us symptoms like anxiety or worry to be able to reveal that there's something systemic and he needs to attack the source of the bacteria before it pervades the heart. But the issues come back to like the series where we find our sense of belonging. So... I want to look at in our remaining minutes here. We have a slide for any of you note-takers. Some of the fruits or symptoms of belonging to the wrong treasure. But first look with me at our remaining verses, verse 26 through 32. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of their life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Look at the fillies, uh, look at the lilies of the field, the fillies of the leal. Oh, no. How they grow? They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon in his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O of you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things shall be added to you. So some of the fruits, some of the symptoms that God uses to expose that the heart is fixated on the wrong treasure, the first one that he gives you right here is anxiety. And then it begins to have a ripple effect from there. He doesn't deal just with the anxiety, folks. That's the beauty of this passage. He deals with the anxiety as something symptomatic of the systemic problem of not understanding Who you belong to. So when your heart is fixated on the wrong things, we start to be anxious about those wrong things. And in order to tweak it and put you under the hood, he says, no, go back again. Look at the Father. Look at the way that he cares for these things. Look at the way he cares for silly things like lilies or birds or grass What are you being anxious about? Are lilies anxious? Are the birds anxious, wondering how they're going to make their nests? Is the grass anxious right now, wondering if it's going to have enough chlorophyll come springtime? Are the leaves anxiously trying to bud their way out of the trees right now? Yet if your father's able to provide for those, by implication, since you know the end of the story, how much more you whom he bled and died and rose again for. That's the part that's missing from this story, isn't it? Because we didn't know the end of the story yet. They hadn't seen the crucifixion. But when he says, how much more you, who your heavenly Father cares for, you know the end of the story. How much more you, who he cares for so much that he allowed himself to be beaten and mocked and ridiculed and scorned to show you just how deeply he cares for all of your needs. Another fruit or symptom of belonging to the treasure is you're constantly worrying about your treasure. This is uh, Snoop Dogg theology. Your mind on your money and your money on your mind. You know what I'm saying? It's saying that you will constantly be fixed. I can't believe I just said that. Um, if your treasure is anything of this earth, you're going to be fixated on worrying about that treasure. Which leads to the next one. You're going to be spending your life thinking about your treasure. It's neat because each of these kind of has a good and a bad element, doesn't it? That's why I use the words either expose or reveal. It could either expose your heart that you are spending your life thinking about your treasure, or it can reveal your heart that you are spending your life thinking about your treasure. The fourth one is you spend your life devoted to your treasure. You spend your life accruing treasure in this life, you will spend your life devoted to your treasure in this life. That is the implication of this passage, which then leads to having to spend your time keeping up your treasure. You ever look at the circular nature of the hoax called the American dream? Well, let me get treasure so I can care for my treasure, so I can work more to be able to get better treasure, so I could devote my life keeping up my treasure, but then my treasure breaks, but it's okay because I've already been fixated on the nine new treasures, and I've been kind of hoping that the treasure would break because I really want new treasure so that I could go deeper in debt to be able to live for my treasure, and then I can get up and go to work a little bit earlier because now I have to keep up for my treasure, and on and on and on it continues which ends up leading to having your joy tied into your treasure. Anybody get that feeling? Uh, I don't know where your place is, where the treasure is just extra ooh and ah and blingy. For me, it's Best Buy, man. Oh, I love that place. I'm not a Home Depot guy. I've got two left hands. I'm not all that handy. But man, I can work an iPad like nobody's business, so... uh, I go in and I see all those gadgets, and I'm like, man, I need this. And Steve Jobs told me that if I get the iPad Air, my life is going to be so much better than just having the iPad 2. The iPad 2 doesn't give me the eternal life that I'm looking for. I need this new one. And then I need a watch to be able to like ding me every single second that I can't be looking at my phone. I need a notification sent straight to my wrist. And then I'll have joy for five minutes until the credit card bill comes in, which ends up leading to a heart that crowds out the treasure. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's saying you keep filling your heart more and more input, treasure, treasure, treasure. What you're doing is you are just evacuating the spirit as being the treasure of the resident president over your heart. And you are giving a new president to reside over those things. So how do you set your heart on the right treasure? I'm glad you asked. Verses 33 and 34. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. (laughs) The last words I'm not even really going to be teaching on, but they're hilarious. He's saying, tomorrow's likely to stink too. So don't worry about it because there'll be plenty of stinkiness to go around when you wake up on Monday. So stop worrying about Monday and get your head back in Sunday. Amen? So Jesus reminds us, you don't have to get lost By being mastered by building a kingdom here on earth. That's the whole beauty of this passage. And this passage gets ripped from the gospel centrality beauty of it when it's ripped from its context. Jesus is trying to encourage you, O believer in Jesus Christ, here this morning, is that as a believer in Jesus Christ, you belong to a new kingdom. You've been given a new identity, you've been given a new mission. You've been given a new purpose. You've been given a new name. You've been given a new sense of belonging. What it comes down to is Jesus is saying, oh, child of God, embrace the kingdom that you really belong to. And not just embracing it, but embrace it with a wholehearted embracing that crowds out the other things that you would try to build a little kingdom for. That kingdom belongs to Jesus. Jesus of all the things that we worry about when our eyes are focused on the wrong kingdom. He's saying, look, the beauty is you don't have to worry about all these things because if you seek the builder of the kingdom, all of those things will be added unto you. You don't have to let anxiety drive you when you embrace this. You don't have to let fear drive you when you embrace this. As a matter of fact, you can be fearless is what Jesus is getting at. Because when you belong to his kingdom and set your eyes on his kingdom, all of those things that you fear about are going to be added to you as a child of God. So a couple of the fruits of right treasure that will be added. When you belong to the right treasure, you can be free from anxiety. Can you just take a second and breathe? like, oh, man, when you belong to the right treasure, you get to release that anxiety. You don't have to hold it up. You don't have to, oh, I just need to maintain, maintain, maintain. Release it. God's going to maintain it. Isn't that beautiful? When you belong to the right treasure, get this, this is so cool. Thinking about your treasure becomes a form of worship rather than a compulsive obsession. Man, I get to just that's what You ever hear the term meditating? We don't sit and meditate like a straight Zen Buddhist, right? We meditate means I'm fixing my eyes and my mind on what that treasure is. And as I just allow my mind to go there and contemplate the true treasure that is Jesus Christ, that's worship. When you belong to the right treasure, devoting your life to your treasures brings life and not death. That's the implication here in this passage, isn't it? When you live for keeping up your treasure, there's just this constant cyclical nature of death that pervades your life. But when your treasure is Jesus, it's life, begetting life, begetting life, life, begetting life. And when we belong to the right treasure, it manifests itself in a deep and abiding joy that just wants to shout hallelujah. Can somebody shout hallelujah? Hallelujah. You know what, all you people that come up to me and tell me that you just wanted to shout hallelujah, you guys are frauds. I just, want to, I, I just gave you your moment. And you had the opportunity. That's not the way you're supposed to end a sermon by calling your people frauds. So, um, the conclusion, what treasure do you guys belong to? And really, ask your heart. Survey the condition of your heart. Look at the symptoms, but don't fixate on the symptoms. Let the symptoms lead you back to the river that runs through your heart. And ask your heart, where is it that my treasure truly lies? We're about to partake of communion, and Pastor Tim is going to lead us into a time of treasuring and savoring Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you that you are the abundant treasure, the true treasure. And though we joke, Lord... It does make our hearts want to cry out. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. To you be all the glory, dominion, and honor forever and ever. Amen.